I'm Matt Littman. I'm the executive director of 97%, a gun safety organization. I'm joined today by Whitney Austin in Kentucky. Whitney has an organization there called Whitney Strong, which I'm guessing that she never wanted to have to form, but did because of an incident that happened. Uh, it's almost three years ago. Almost it's three years ago and eight days, I think, right? Um, since that happened. Um, so Whitney, so first tell us, I, I hate to even ask you to tell this story at all, and I know you've probably told it a ton, uh, but would you mind talking for a minute about what happened to you that day? Sure. That's my job is to tell this story and convince people to think differently. We just had the three-year anniversary of the shooting. It was September 6th, 2018. And on that day, I thought just any other day, I was an employee of the Third Bank. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, but headquarters are in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I traveled up there regularly. Um, on that day, it was usual day, jump in the car, drive 71, listen to podcasts, talk to peers. And then as I started to descend into the city, I joined a conference call, which think back and I regret because I was focused elsewhere. But while I was on that conference call, I crossed Fifth Street, I walked onto Fountain Square, and then I approached the Fifth Third corporate headquarters. And I remember thinking that, that what I saw was odd, but not enough to deter me from entering the building. What I saw was shattered glass in the door, the revolving door. And I thought, maybe somebody threw a rock, but never did it ever cross my mind that it was a bullet that had entered uh, the building. And so as soon as I pushed on the door is when I was hit by a barrage of bullets across the right side of my body and just collapsed with the force, had so many thoughts from these must be bullets. This must be a mass shooting. How am I going to live? I have a five and a seven-year-old that need their mother but gathered really quickly that I didn't have any options for survival because I was too weak to move. There was no one on the square. I tried to move to call 911. Um, and at that time is when the second barrage of bullets came. And at that point, I, I just, I, I thought, this is it. I said my prayers and, um, you know, really believed that that was going to be the end of my life. But Somehow, um, one of the luckiest people that ever lived, Cincinnati Police Department, arrived in record time. They had just gone through all the training necessary to be effective in a mass shooting situation, and they did what they were trained to do. And so I was pulled from that revolving door once they were able to take down the shooter. And the rest of it is, is much of a blur. I know there was a bumpy ambulance ride. I know that I talked to my husband and asked him to get to Cincinnati as soon as possible. And that every nurse and physician I encountered, I begged, you know, you have to let me live. You have to help me live. I am a mother. My children need me. And then eventually just kind of passing out because of all of it. And then when I woke up, I had my husband with me, my family with me, my bosses with me, and they shared your wife is a miracle. She was shot 12 times and none of these bullets hit a major organ or artery. And so it, it all goes back to that. I knew in that moment that I was given this gift that barely anyone gets. And so that has changed my perspective on life and 
honestly, every bit of it, right? Even down to my profession. So I do all of this because of gratitude. It's an, obviously an incredible, um, incredible story. Um, and then, so before you, before that day, what were you doing for a career? I was a product manager. I had the entire unsecured lending portfolio for the bank and I loved it. It was very exciting. And I was there that day because we were about to launch a big product. So, And then you, after, when you survived months later, a year later, I don't know, you tell me, you then decided to form an organization. You didn't say that we have to get rid of guns. You, you and your husband are gun owners? Right. You'd been gun owners for, for a while, I'm assuming, by that point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you probably have guns for protection or that sort of thing? Yeah, I think we have guns for multiple reasons. But uh, we were gun owners before I was shot, and we are gun owners now. But back to your question, Whitney Strong did not start immediately, right? You need to file the paperwork and become a 501c3. Uh, but we did start the organization officially about three weeks later. And as we sat in that in the hospital in Cincinnati, we thought a lot about how we can make a difference because up until that point, luckily our lives had not been touched by gun violence, but that's not the same for so many Americans when you think of the many types of gun violence. And so we put a lot of thought into how can we approach this differently? How can we pull people into the conversation and make this about responsible gun ownership, uh, not about ending gun ownership, because right. that's not who we are. You know, all right. the gun owners we know are responsible. So let's make more of them. And so what type of reaction do you get when you talk to people about the gun issue and try to bring people together? Do you get a positive reaction? And what do you think is effective when you're talking to people about coming together? I, obviously, we agree with you. You know, we feel the same way. Most people want responsible Gun ownership, almost everybody agrees. Um, uh, and we also do the same thing, which is we try to bring people together around the issue because we think it's an issue that people agree on. What's your approach and how do people react to it? What works for you? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll say that there are some strategies that are not worth your time. Um, there's a subset of the population that believes that any movement, motion to help reduce gun violence is uh, really the same thing as taking away the Second Amendment. And so we don't spend our time with right. those people, the no, 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 no people. We also don't spend our time trying to do this in a virtual way. This is a conversation. You need to be face-to-face. -face. And I would uh, argue that you should do it where you can have the most impact. So I personally feel having the most impact comes with speaking to legislators. Um, and then where I can have impact one-on-one, -on -one, I will. And so what we did a lot of in the beginning, and it has died frequently or died recently because of the pandemic, want to get back to face-to-face -face so much, um, was going into gun shops. You know, one area in which there is so much common ground is trying to reduce suicide by accessing, by limiting access to lethal means. And so firearm instructors get that, gun shop owners get that. They don't want their guns to be used for the purposes of suicide. And so we would go from gun shop to gun shop and help them recognize the warning signs of suicide, help them understand the lethality of a firearm and how it is so much more lethal than many other methods. 
and then prepare them to be able to act if if they need to intervene with all of the different resources that are available. So in those instances, you're coming in with a benign uh, concept, and then you're also doing it in real life, face to face. You know, not raising your voice, not getting angry, trying to figure out where common ground can be found. Even during COVID, like for the last year, have you been able to go around and meet with people individually? So we haven't focused on gun shops during COVID, um, but certainly one-on-one conversations with plenty of gun owners. You have to remember, I'm from the South, so it's not like I have to go find gun owners or I don't know gun owners. We know plenty of gun owners and we have conversations every day. Uh, So that's just the environment that we're in. You mentioned the suicide issue. So I think there have been over 17,000 suicides with a gun already in 2021. Um, And then you have this legislation that you're supportive of. Can you tell us about that? The acronym is CAR, C-A-R-R. Can you tell us about that? And also, when you talk about your area, you're focused in Kentucky and Ohio. Is that correct? Correct. And we certainly do work at the federal level where it makes sense with those common ground issues like comprehensive background checks or um, common ground solutions, rather. Yes. So, yes, in Kentucky and Ohio, crisis aversion and rights retention is for Kentucky. At this point, we have strong leadership, strong bipartisan leadership out of the state Senate. And this came about because... Originally, I wanted a solution to help prevent what happened to me with mass violence. But the more I started to research different risk protection orders, I found that much of the evidence supports that this is working to prevent suicide. So there's a study out of Indiana, for example, that has had an extreme risk protection order since the late 90s. And it showed that for every 10 orders issued, one life was saved from suicide. And in the state of Kentucky, just like the country, that is our greater problem. And so it goes back to limiting access to lethal means. And while crisis aversion and rights retention is not a traditional risk protection order, we've taken a lot of feedback to customize it for Kentucky. Um, The outcome is the same, that it can reduce suicide across the state. And in the instance that, God forbid, a mass shooting would erupt, um, could erupt in Kentucky, that we would have a tool to be able to stop it. One thing we find is that risk protection orders tend to work and are supported in a very bipartisan way in the Senate. Lindsey Graham is the one who initiated legislation on risk protection orders, but that it's not used often enough. No, and it's only in 18 states and D.C., but if I go back to the very beginning of coming home from the hospital and reading through policy and trying to land on What legislative solution do we want to champion? Because we believe this is not just something that should be solved through legislation. There are many other things that need to be done. It was important to find, one, a bill or a a law that's actually effective, and secondly, one that has bipartisan support, that common ground theme. And so you mentioned Senator Graham. I mean, I remember reading the School Safety Commission report that came out in December of 2019, and even President Trump at the time endorsed extreme risk protection orders. So uh, I sat through the hearing, the judiciary hearing in um, Congress, and listened to Senator Graham testify and many other um, members from both sides of the political aisle. And so all of those things make me feel really hopeful uh, that we can get the rest of those states eventually. But to do it in a way that makes sense for each state. And that's what we've done. We've customized it for us. 
Very good. And Whitney, the organization, Whitney Strong, you've been doing amazing work. So I want to say thank you. I know that, you know, years ago when you were working for a bank, this is not where you thought your life was going to go. Um, but you did do this. You did take this and make it into something where you're super effective. So thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm just going to ask you, and by the way, you have an op-ed in USA Today this week, which I should also mention that you had an op-ed published. By the way, I subscribe to USA Today because of your op-ed. So USA Today owes you a thank you because they got a new customer. So Me um, too. I did too. Because <laughs> otherwise it's fine to paywall. Aside from your work with Whitney Strong, what is something uh, – this is going to be fast. So, so as fast as you could do, we call this the lightning round. Uh, what is something that you wish people would know uh, about you? I love to sing and dance. I am a uh, chorus right. girl. Is that right? I would not have guessed. Mm-hmm. What's the? I d- I don't know how to work that into Whitney Strong, but um, we try. <laughs> what is the? Um, you get get asked about gun violence all the time. What is the question that you wish people would not ask you? Do you think something will ever happen if it didn't already happen after Sandy Hook? Right. I don't like that question. I'm a positive person. I want right. I want us to have hope and believe that change will come. You know, Whitney, I work on, I've worked on many issues over time, and many of them take years and years and years, and you have to build the groundwork. And eventually, that goes slow, and then it happens fast. And so you have to lay the groundwork, and that could take time. And what you're doing here is so important. If it takes time, then it takes time. As long as we're able to save some lives, I think that's what's important in the end. Um, we we ask people at the end of these to tag, to tag somebody, to ask, to suggest somebody who we should talk to after you, who is it that you'd like to tag to be next for our series? Well, speaking of Sandy Hook, one of my mentors, one of the people that I respect most is Mark Barden, who lost Daniel in the Sandy Hook shooting. And he's an inspiration, how he picks himself up every day and keeps doing the work. I will never know. So when I feel weak, I look at him and then I feel strong. So that's who, Mark Gordon. You know, thank you, Whitney. We did, uh, we talked to Fred Gutenberg recently, uh, who lost his daughter in Parkland, Florida, and went to work on this issue immediately after. He was a Dunkin' Donuts franchise guy. And then his daughter died. She was shot in the back at Parkland. And now he goes to work on this issue every day. And I don't know how he does it either. I don't know how he does it either. And I'm glad that you're doing this work. So I just want to say thank you. And thank you for talking to us today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you.